Lands of M, 104.4. The first radio. It was a box with a cat's whiskers. Well, it's a little glass tube on top of the box. And to get the station, you had to twiddle a wire on this end here against a crystal in there. And that would change the station. But there was always a fight because everybody wanted... There was only one set of earphones. I'm Graham Aubrey. You're listening to Resonance <laughs> FM. Because you're worth it. Because you're worth it. <laughs> no, I've taken it too far now. Taken it too far. Imagine me what I'm like when I drink beer. Welcome to The Bike Show on Resonance FM with me, Jack Thurston. And the show is coming to you this week on a glorious day in the Golden Valley on the very edge of England before England gives way to Wales. With me for a ride around the countryside here over into Wales and back again is Ned Bolting. Ned, you're a familiar figure on the um, television bringing the Tour de France and uh, domestic bike racing to our screens for ITV. You've gone and written another book. I know, yeah. Your first book, which yep. we have talked about on the show, looks back at a decade of your reporting on the Tour de France. But this one is um, looking at British cycling and how British cycling is blossoming at the moment and also unearthing some of the roots of the current boom that stretch back an awful long way. Yeah, it's. I mean, you've done a really good job there of trying to sum it up, much better than I have. I mean, my last book was quite easy to sum up. It was a sort of, you know, from novice to devotee on the Tour de France. This one is... is um, is slightly more free-forming, formed, if that's a, a phrase. And certainly I don't want anyone to think that it's, it's a kind of a history of British cycling because it is in no way a history of British cycling. In the same way that How I Won the Yellow Jumper was a personal journey and an experience and sort of bouncing around the Tour de France, this is not dissimilar structurally because this is me bouncing around the British cycling scene in all its manifestations, you know, from elite performance right down to nonsense participants like you and me. It's, it's very much what's happened to me, uh, you know, over the last two or three years and the characters I've come across. Partly work has sort of introduced me in a slightly haphazard way to these people and um, partly I've gone out and found out a little bit where my curiosity has been piqued. I've kind of gone on a little voyage of discovery and unearthed, as you say, some of these bizarre, shambolic, rambling, odd, austere strange stories about these I became very hooked on these kind of black and white characters from the post-war years really who um, did great things often in isolation often against the flow of society um, almost to the scorn of society often in another country because they simply had to leave these islands and to, for almost no reward no recognition and no one remembers them you know so I, I became quite fascinated with these people who when you speak to them are just thrilled that Anybody, somebody, even if it's a clown like me, remembers what they did and, and wants to talk to them about it. Because there is an otherness to cycling yeah. on these islands, and it's something that you'd feel even if you ride a bike just for getting around the place and nothing sporting at all. But it's something that you tap into again and again in the book. <clears throat> Your background in sports reporting is in football, <clears throat> right? Could you write a book like this about football? Or is cycling different because it's got this otherness? I think I couldn't, and it is different. And I was wondering why it's different because you know there's grassroots football. Football has a long, you know, and, and, and fascinating past of its own. But the difference being, if you had to sort of reduce it to one difference, it is is perhaps this that we can lay claim, I think, in this country with some justification to having invented football. We certainly believe we did. With a, with a, you know, it's our national game, and it's we wrote the rules. Yeah, other countries might disagree slightly, but we lay claim to it. And we certainly do that with cricket, obviously, and rugby. They're the three, when you think the three major team sports. So we kind of own them, right? They're ours. They're our games. We're not terribly good historically at any of them. We can't seem to beat anyone in the football. Cricket, we come and go. We've got a half-decent team at the moment. But, you know, and we haven't won the Rugby World Cup. We've won it once or something. Or twice. I don't really follow the sport. But we're not world beaters. But suddenly, in cycling, we are. I mean, very suddenly. We've got the best track cyclists. We've got the best sprinter in Grand Tours, arguably, that there's ever been. We've got a couple of the best stage racers currently available to mankind. So in almost every discipline, in this truly global sport, we're the best. And yet, it ain't ours. We didn't. This is not our invention. 
you know, we cannot lay claim to having been the birthplace and the cradle of professional cycling. Quite the reverse. We, we have this separate development on this island, like, like, like as if we'd sort of grown up on the Galapagos Islands, you know. We're like a bunch of spiny-backed, strange reptiles who've kind of lived in the shadows and done their own thing and evolved generation after generation into something rather odd and f- grotesque and, frankly, ignorable. Up to this point where, all of a sudden, for a variety of reasons, we're the best in the world and everyone has to look at us and go... How did that happen? That's why it's different with, with cycling. And that's why there's a, there's, a, there's a culture clash, I think, at the heart of this book that, that is its motor. That's what fascinated me, the old and the new, and you know, how the one thing relates to the other. And whether or not people... You know, I don't want to disrespect this old and venerable tradition of time trialling in this country at all, because I think it's wonderful and different. And I just wonder whether the, the heart and soul of the people who still run the cycling clubs in this country and have done father to son and mother to daughter for generations whether they feel that some of their heritage some of their culture is being torn away in this sort of march for lycra clad progress well we're going to get on our bikes head down to hay which will be a little bit of a warm-up and then we'll steel ourselves for the ascent of the gospel pass which um is is terrifying (laughs) i'm not looking forward to it jack That was a very quiet lane that we took into Hay, avoiding the main B road. It was a lost lane, wasn't it, Jack? It was precisely what your book's all about. It was a single track thing, and the only vehicle we saw was spreading tar into potholes, and it blocked our way for. That was very, uh, yeah, pu- public-minded uh, of them, wasn't it, to go out there and um, yeah. look after the cyclist by filling that hole. I know. I was going to tell them. Never mind that. No one uses this lost lane. Get down the old Kent Road and sort that out, mate. You're wasting your time here. <laughs> Well, we're outside the Hay Cinema Bookshop, which yeah. is one of the many bookshops of this small Herefordshire town that is, is known um, for its bookshops. I, I don't know quite how it all came about. I, I hear the sort of... People say that there was this guy who had a bookshop and then another bookshop and another bookshop and then decided that this was enough for him to declare himself king of Hay on Y <laughs> and um, that the town would henceforth be an independent principality immune from um, Her Majesty's rule of law. Um, I don't know what happened to that idea, but um, they still have got the bookshops. It's remarkable, isn't it, this book festival? It's the first time I've been there. And I guess, I mean, I don't know the history of these things, but since I've started writing, I've done a number of... It's the first time I've done Hay, but a number of literary festivals. And I think Hay obviously sort of forged the path, and, and these have sprung up absolutely everywhere now. Ilkley is a huge literary festival bath i've done that as well and they seem to be all over the place and really well attended someone's making an awful lot of money out of us jack i don't know who it is it certainly isn't us are there lots of books about cycling compared to other sports do you think do you think reading and riding goes together yeah no certainly i mean you'll be aware as as i am that publishing the publishing world is crying out for cycling books at the moment and the glut that's come onto the market this summer is testament to that look it's um without how do you phrase this without sounding either patronising or, or that the cycling community is very of that ilk, you know, by and large. People, people, um, people who ride bikes are interested in reading about it as well. And there's a <clears throat> pent-up demand for it, I think, because the supply has been quite limited up till now. Um, people want to explore. It's, so, it's such a rich sport in terms of, like we were talking about before, because it's not just the sport, is it? It's the, it's the act of turning a pedal as well. And, and there's so many different ways of approaching the subject and um, we've each got a, a unique take on that I hope and there are lots of different levels at which cycling can cycling stories can be told from the geography and the history culture drama mm. uh, I don't know that there are other sports that are quite as susceptible to that many levels of storytelling well the characters are great aren't they and, and ultimately they're not you know I, I'd like to think what I'm writing is not a sports book I know it's in that section in the, in, the, in the bookshop, although I did find it in the travel section once in foils, which quite amused me. But um, I, I saw it in the memoir section. Memoir, yeah, it's a memoir. Sounds pompous, doesn't it? Um, but no, it's a book, and The Guardian very kindly reviewed On the Road Bike, and, and um, I, the phrase I was really pleased with and very flattered by was that um, the reviewer just said, this is ultimately a book about people. 
you know, and that's all I've ever written about, really. And that's that's the reason why they make good stories because I think it takes a unique. If we're talking about racing cyclists, which I guess we are by and large, it takes a unique set of characteristics to go out and do that for a living, especially in Britain, you know. Um, but in any in any um, uh, culture, because you've got to have something wrong with you. You've got to have a screw loose somewhere, haven't you, to, to punish yourself in the way that these guys do, and women, um, on your own, day after day. And that makes it different. You know, we can all identify, I think, with turning up at a football training ground and having a laugh with the lads and kicking a pig's bladder around and going home in your Range Rover. That would be easy, wouldn't it, relatively? But to do what you have to do to be a cyclist, I think makes you fascinating, by definition. So it is a book that's a series of encounters that you have and that is a big part of what you do on the TV, isn't it? You try and connect with people who've just done something yeah. extraordinary and amazing and successful or tragic and unsuccessful, disastrous, and get a little bit more than the media training might give you. Do you think that they, they come out with good stuff or do you have to really deploy your bolting skills to, uh, to, to get them to open up to you. They vary, don't they? I mean, media training is anathema, really. It's, you know, it's, the, it's, the, it's the poison in the system, I think. Um, some, some guys like Chris Froome, who will win the Tour de France this year, um, he's, I don't think he's ever had media training. He's just naturally good at it, right? So chipping away at his cold edifice is quite a challenge, actually. I went out for Rouleau magazine a couple of weeks ago to Monaco and spoke to him for longer than I've ever spoken to him for a couple of hours. I got somewhere, you know, I got some fresh stuff out of him, but it was hard work because he's, he's a lovely guy, Chris, a genuinely friendly, charming individual, but very cagey. But other guys, you know, the Cavendishes of the world, it's just brilliant. You don't, there's, no, there's no skill to what I do there. I just simply put a microphone and go, go on then, do whatever you're going to do, Mark, because whatever I say, you're gonna, you, you've got your own thing going on here and you're, you're going to come out with it regardless of, you know, what, what, I, what my input. I don't have any input. Mark, just go on, be Mark. And that's what I love about him as well. And Brad Wiggins, is he the same or is he a bit more difficult? Because he seems to come out with great stuff, but he can also be incredibly surly as well. You never know with Brad. You never know which Brad's going to turn up. And um, Whereas with Mark, you know which Mark's going to turn up. Brad can be charming to the point of unctuousness, thoughtful to the point of philosophy, and at surprising moments, graceless. And I've encountered all those sides of him. Um, he, he, he plays a game... Sometimes too much, uh, sometimes to our great delight. But I'm not really sure what the game is sometimes. I'm, I'm confused by what the game is, and I don't think he understands what he's doing sometimes. He's a very complex guy. I'd love to know what's going on in his head right now. Is there anyone that you have really been scared about ringing their doorbell or going up to them after a race to, to get a quote? Maybe some of the encounters from the book. Um, because it is a series of encounters. That's the way I yeah. kind of like to think about it. And that's why I, I felt like I was the um, someone on your shoulder kind of watching good. Ned yeah, going into these various situations, whether it's a bear pit or a more friendly, yeah. uh, homely kind of scenario. Obviously, riding up a hill with Chris Boardman is going to get anyone <laughs> quaking in their cities. <laughs> <laughs> and he was very gentlemanly. Yeah, I completely... The problem with the Chris... You know, Chris was my access point, really, because I know him and I have his mobile number and I count him as a friend. So when the kind of penny dropped, that this is what I wanted to do. I wanted to find out about British cycling and all its manifestations. My first port of call was Chris. So I fixed up a ride with him. Basically, it was ended up being put in such unending pain that I forgot to ask any pertinent questions. So I kind of came home after an entire day spent in his company, none the wiser, really, and I hadn't asked a single sensible question. But what I had got was a sense of uh, Chris's single-mindedness and his, um, and, and his post-career relaxation and what a wonderful human being he is, actually. And also how important he was, actually, to the whole scene in Britain. And, and you speak to riders who had already retired before Chris was riding and riders who were riding concurrently with Chris and the generation of riders who have grown up in his wake and are now reaping the rewards to a man and woman, they will pay homage to the impact that Chris's career had on British cycling. What did he change? Aspiration, I think. Potential. He was the first one, I think this would be fair, to really grab the sport by the knackers and pull it firmly with a, a, a jar into the, into the 20th century, you know, because it, it, it had been a, a homespun, woolly 
shorted affair in Britain up till then. And Chris just, you know, he was, he was, the, he was the first one to, to apply this kind of now familiar Brailsford kind of clean slate. Why do we do things like that? No reason why we do things like that. Let's change it. Let's, let's change it. Let's do stuff like let's turn my teenage son's bedroom into an oxygen deprivation chamber by taping up the, the, the windows with gaffer tape. And, and that'll be good. That'll make me faster. And lo and behold, it does, you know. And that's Strange still stuff. quite homespun and charming, yeah, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. No, you're absolutely right, Jack. It's both scientific and quaint. Chris, to this day, because he still works, you know, on a semi-official capacity, I don't know what his status is now with British Cycling on aerodynamics and all this sort of thing, even some of the stuff he comes up with now is breathtaking in its obvious simplicity and quite brilliant, you know, and quite... He just... He looks at you... He, I did a day's filming with him in the wind tunnel in Southampton for our Tour de France coverage this year where he basically had me as his gimp again, you know, my, making me fool out of myself, but he had me on a stationary bike in a wind tunnel on a normal road bike in normal kind of kit and then bit by bit changed bits of it and measured the power that I would need to sustain that kind of... And, you know, as simple as changing a vented helmet like the one I'm riding here to one of those very round, kind of half-spherical helmets that you see in the peloton now with the IAM team and, and people like that. And instantly you're saving yourself kind of 20 watts or something like that just by changing the helmet. And you can actually feel your head being tugged forward. So I said to Chris, well, why doesn't everybody in the peloton wear these? Why does anyone wear a vented helmet? And he just went, don't know. There is no reason. So cycling is still... a you know, it's a box of frogs, really, isn't it? What about the lottery money and the impact that that had? Because mm. there might be a colder analysis that would say, at a certain point, I suppose, in the late 90s, would it be? I guess after Chris Boardman's successes mm-hmm. that the British Olympic Committee and the lottery sports funding people said, well, we need to get some more medals. How can we get the most medals mm. for, the, for the money? And I suppose somebody thought we can get a lot of medals through cycling and there's quite a lot of medals in the olympics in cycling on the track compared to track, other other track, disciplines track, track being the key word you know yeah. what a controllable environment for how, how manageable what you can do there and also i have to say how small the gene pool of really seriously competitive countries so the you know the opposition I think it was identified for all those reasons that there weren't that many countries who really, if you, you know... Yeah, it's one, it's one of the sitting-down sports it's a sitting that we down, excel it's a, in. It's a carbon-fibre sitting-down first-world sport, you know, and I'm afraid that's the truth of it. You're absolutely right. But how did that translate into what we see now, which is a flourishing of cyclosportives, an uptick in cycling in London, at least, mm. maybe a few other towns around the country, and a general sense in which publishers like at the Hay Festival, want to um, have cycling books. That Cycling is on the rise at the minute, and that's been going on, I suppose, 10 years, mm. would you say, 10 or 15 years? Mm-hmm. How do these things well. cause the other things that happen later on? What are the real causal drivers of this stuff? Because what I think is quite nice in your book is that you, you paint a picture of lots of different elements. You, you sort of leave the reader to draw their own conclusions mm. about what causes what yeah I ask questions not really totally good at answering them really because we don't know do we but what is reminding me you say 10 or 15 years I'd say not even I remember very well covering the 2000s again I talk about this a little bit in the book the the 2007 Grand Départ in London um, which was a huge thing for me you know I was very proud of the fact that this race I'd fallen in love with over the previous four years had suddenly come to town and I could show everyone back home what I'd been doing and why I was so excited about it and sure, it was fabulous, you know, the Mal, I'm sure you are there yourself, Jack, the Mal shut down, it was a daylight today, wasn't it? Lovely sunny weather after a couple of weeks of sort of rain and, um, and it was spectacular, the crowds were vast. But you know what? Outside of our little cycling bubble, it had no impact, really, measurable impact. And um, we put it on ITV1 and the network put it on the big network and, um, and nobody watched, so it disappeared to ITV4 again, the show, for the best part of a decade or half a decade at least. And uh, I suspect that if you were into cycling in Britain, you went to London that day. So there was no wider audience to appeal to because everyone was on the road watching it. It had no impact. So that was as recently as 2007. And now look. In what way has it changed now, though? Well, no, what, what, what's your metric? Is, is it is the back on ITV1? No, well, a bit of that, sure. I mean, whether or not we make it onto the network this year, I don't know. It remains to be seen. But certainly, I mean, I used to go away in July for a month, leave my family and everyone behind, come back. People would say, where have you been? And I'd say the Tour de France, and they'd go, oh, who, won, who won it this year? And I'd kind of say, Carlos Sastre. 
and that would be the end of the conversation, you know. So that was what I'm used to. I could not believe coming back at the end of the 2012 tour, I could not believe that the story had migrated not only onto the back pages, but onto the front pages of the newspaper. Well, let's go and measure ourselves against the Gospel yeah. Pass, which is the, uh, oh, the big hill of this um, part of the world. It's you've mentioned that, and it doesn't get any easier each time you do. We survived the gospel pass. Actually, I was saved from humiliation at Ned, your turn of speed on those uh, inclines. Once it went above 10%, I could see you pulling away. But fortunately, about halfway up, um, we got a call from Rob Penn, who's a local uh, celebrity cyclist, who's hosting your evening tonight at the Hay Festival, saying, oh, hello, come over and chat oh, with really? us. So I was able to save my <laughs> blushes, which is rather good. Well, I should explain that I'm, I'm on a very silly carbon fibre bike, and you're not. It's the rider, not the bike, Ned, it's as bit, Chris Boardman a, will tell it's you. It's a bit about the bike in this particular case, but it's beautiful, Jack. Thank you very much. I was just saying, I, I, I feel like I've stepped onto the pages of your book. I mean, it really is. We've got proper you know early summer clouds and you know a bit of warmth in the sun and uh, it's just and a bit of a breeze and it's everything's got that early summer vivid green about it hasn't it Before it's a sort of arcadian to... incredible yeah beautiful beautiful not a bit like lewisham how about the climb yeah really good <laughs> i was quite glad when it finished it goes on a bit doesn't it it and... winds its way up and it it reminds me a little bit of the pyrenean climbs in a sort of small scale way not the alpine ones it the road's very narrow and it just keeps on twisting it was, I'll tell you what it was, it was the Col de Telegraph, actually, and then, and then it kind of flattened out a bit, and then we did the Galibier just, just at the end. That's what it was, but in a kind of micro, micro thing. But you're right, it flattens out and then just goes up again. Beautiful. And then a good curving descent, yeah. a bit of a gravelly road. That, that road has been closed well, for much of the winter with the heavy snows. So you, you, you ride up here and you basically get to 20 metres of hard pack, snow and ice and grit. Yeah. And then roads in bad condition yeah so, yeah fortunately we didn't have any slipping and sliding no i'm not a very good descendant uh, i don't like it it would be a silly way to die <laughs> um, i know I, I take no risks and i'll make no apologies for taking no risks suffering yeah i suppose we could call it the rafferization of of cycling and raffa does feature a couple of times in your book mm. yeah. this idea of, of suffering and glory and the epicness of cycling where do you stand on that well, it's there. It's undeniably there. And it's kind of why I suppose we watch the sport, at least. But it's not all that there is to the sport, is it? And I, I, I do get a sense that it's a card which, in our newfangled enthusiasm to embrace the sport, is overplayed somewhat. Um, you know, a bike ride, it, it, seems, it seems to me, has to be epic, otherwise it doesn't count. Um, well, not the bike rides I know, and you know, not this bike ride, Jack. You know that there's. You haven't uh, seen the cheese toasties yet. No, they're going to be epic. And Conceivably, I mean, people talk about epic burritos, don't they? <laughs> at great length. Do you think you can have an epic cheese toastie? I hope so. <laughs> um, I've got an epic hunger now. No, it's just um, it's a bit. Uh, it's like serving everything with hot Nando's chili sauce, isn't it? You know, it, it's a kind of a universal badge that has to be worn if you're a cyclist you know and um it's a little bit boring and i think we're, we're you know we're a bit better than broader as a church than that and i think we could move beyond that having said all that I you need some very expensive and nice kit in order to suffer properly don't <laughs> yeah. you i mean that's the interesting thing your interview with simon Mottram, the head honcho and founder of rafa yeah. he says you know people are going to be going out there up these mountains and they're going to be suffering mm. and therefore they need to be in extremely comfortable well-tailored mm. clothing mm. yeah what's that all about that doesn't really make any sense i mean simon's brilliant because a he's a very clever man and his stuff is lovely it, I mean, is. it really really is lovely i've as I mentioned in the book, I've been sent a lot in the past and I still wear it and I do love it. But he, he um, I think he was kind of parodying himself to a certain extent, playing up slightly to the role that I'd, as, I'd as, uh, ascribed to him in the book. Because, uh, funny enough, I was at dinner with some 
British cycling fans who came to listen to me ramble on in this kind of fashion last night, they took me out for a curry afterwards and one of them was wearing a Rafa t-shirt and the conversation turned to Rafa. And I said, well, of course, you know the history behind the, the name Rafa. And they went, no, no, I don't know that. And I, so I kind of told them the whole story about San Rafael and you know the way Simon had appropriated the name and all this kind of thing and it being fundamentally a Mediterranean name named after an aperitif. And it was news to them. They thought it was an old British design for, that had been there since whenever. Like Brooks. Like Brooks, precisely like Brooks. And it, they genuinely hadn't looked beyond that. And I think they're probably... I, I was astounded because I thought everyone knew, but maybe that's not the case. I think that they've pulled a very clever trick inadvertently. And uh, anyway, should we go and get our tea? Let's do that. Oh, I'll have a ham and cheese toasty. Have you got some toasties today? I can use toasties, yeah. Ham and cheese toasty and some coleslaw would be... Yeah. Absolutely spot on for me, please. I'll have cheese and tomato toasty, please. And a tea. And tea. Two teas, yeah. Sugary tea for me. Do you want to lean your bike up against this ruined priory? It's not something you do every day, is it? Or maybe you do, I don't know. Are we the only country that is obsessed with ruins? It's a romantic movement. Isn't it? The Germans have got to be into it as well, haven't they? Yeah, maybe they have got... Maybe in Germany they have a slightly different take on ruins nowadays. I don't know if they have so many ruined abbeys. Well, presumably they would, because they had a sort of reformation yeah. of their own, didn't they? I don't know if they had a... A rampant king who was seeking to enrich himself with the lands and monies of medieval monastic orders like we had. But this one actually wasn't sacked by Henry VIII and Thomas Cromwell. and It was before, I think it was just abandoned, basically. I think the, the monks came here and they found the weather a bit too epic <laughs> and they just went back to Gloucestershire and there wasn't any merino under base layers to keep them warm in those days sadly <clears throat> not yeah it used to be overgrown with ivy I think in the in the 19th century when they were really you know it was the high watermark in terms of um, ruins they liked a bit of ivy on their ruins in those days it's probably one of those places as well that's been you know bits of it have been stolen for generations and centuries you know and rebuilt there's probably bits of this scattered all over the valleys isn't there probably just used to build uh pigsties and farmhouses and things it's quite a nice setting it is truly fantastic in fact i'm gonna do that thing and take that tourists do and take a picture because it really is it's hard to get past the word epic actually jack scenic let's go with scenic there we go. I don't think Rafa would have been the same if they'd have gone for scenic no. as their uh, no. USP. No. Cycling is a very scenic activity. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it is. Even in London, actually, which is my natural environment. I'm right out of my comfort zone here, Jack. Um, but even in London, you know, I don't, don't think I... I moved to London in about 95... And it wasn't until about 2004 that I started. So, you know, for the first 10 years, I took buses and tubes everywhere. And it wasn't until 2004 that I started riding around London. And it was only then that I began to understand how the whole place knits together and really fell in love with it then. You know, up to that point, it had simply just been a place to live. Do you think that people who take up cycling should school themselves in, in the history and these stories? Do you think that they will be, their lives will be enriched by understanding the nature of cycling and, and that what you describe in the subtitle of your book as the soul of British cycling. Mm. Do you mm. think that people owe it to themselves to look and find out where this tradition has come from and understand it a bit more? It's something that I wanted to find out, um, for sure. 
the benefit is that I think it gives you an understanding of... of um, I mean, I have written this book from the perspective of someone who who first encountered cycling really from road racing and from the continental scene. So if your enthusiasm for cycling, the reason you're listening to Jack's radio show is because you have come to it late and you come to it through the Tour de France and through the continental road racing scene on the television and then embraced it. You're at the start of a journey which could take you inwards again, you know, and, and I've, I think it is a, I think it's a wonderful trip to make to if you like start with the champs Elysees and end up in a village hall do it in reverse find out you know if you acknowledge your Britishness find out how we did it here and um and where Bradley Wiggins came from I guess are you more drawn to British riders than to other riders no because there's there's something I think about cycling which is quite nice that the teams are not teams like they are in football no. like Manchester United you know if, if we grind out mm. a horrible win mm. our team you know has done well and I'm happy at the end of the day whereas cycling I think it's a little bit more for the neutrals the teams come and go mm. you know, te- team sky will come and go mm. there won't be a team mm. sky maybe in 10 years yeah. or less yeah. and that gives us as spectators the chance to appreciate and cheer on achievements whoever they're done by rather yeah. than seeing an, a, a goal scored against yeah. your team and thinking oh that was terrible I can't enjoy that goal because yeah. it was scored against my team, team. Yeah, the and, team, and it's the really team. weird and I think yeah. we do that a bit with the national side of things which I, I, I didn't like the Olympics coverage last year when it was all about oh and another medal mm. hope mm. for Britain let's mm. go and watch mm. it rather mm. than let's go and look at this amazing mm. judo mm. contest which is not between a British yeah, judoist and somebody else, but it's just a great contest and yeah. let's watch the sport. Why yeah. do we do this nationalism? I mean, yeah. We're grown-up people. Yeah. yeah, No, I agree, and particularly with regard to the Olympics coverage. When did the medal table become such a bloody big thing? You know, I can't remember that from, the, from Los Angeles or whatever, growing up as a kid. I can't remember that constant reference. Let's have a look at that thing standing on the medal table. We're just two points behind Germany or whatever now. When did that become a thing? I couldn't agree more. Uh, but, but the cycling team thing is, is you almost have to take that on a case-by-case, kind of country-by-country basis because different teams mean different things at different times to different countries and different societies, don't they? I mean, I, you know, the Euskadi Euskaltel mean an awful lot to the Basque country, you know, perhaps too much. And their kind of recent abandonment of their all-Basque recruitment policy is a big deal. So you can see why that's slightly different. There is a big section of, of the, the, the new British cycling populace that does feel something about Team Sky, even if it's Edvard Borsenhagen winning a stage of the state of the Tour of Norway, they'll kind of celebrate that in a in a strange kind of a way. And I don't really, I don't know what they're doing with that. I just can't get my head around that at all. So I'm with you on that, Jack. I like in my, I have my favourite riders scattered across the peloton, and they are who they are. But that's not to say that there isn't a, a team thing going on somewhere. I remember once on the Tour de France, one year it started in Belgium, stage two or something. We were having dinner quite late on in Ghent and there was a fight breaking out between Lotto fans and Quickstep fans in the main square <laughs> they were throwing bottles at each other and chanting like football fans about Quickstep and Lotto that's unimaginable isn't it what's that all about so it does exist in strange ways it manifests itself but cycling's great isn't it because there's, there's, there is yes there's that team thing but at a certain point the team means nothing because it's ultimately it's an individual sport it's unlike anything else I can't think of another sport where you have this kind of strange intermeshing of, of uh, the team ethic and the individual pursuit of glory can you think of another example I, can't, I really can't I don't think it exists in anything else and certainly not the necessity of the team to, to success yeah. but also the precariousness of individual riders they're basically freelancers aren't they really they come and go and move around and the teams come and go and I suppose some people might say that that's where some of cycling's problems with doping Mm. come from Mm. is the precariousness of the situation and that riders are uh, very much judged on their individual results and they've got to fulfill the commercial requirements of the sponsors the sponsors can up and go there's no gate money there's no merchandise money Mm. to support Mm. the team Mm. it's all about Mm. A couple of decisions by an executive that's got to decide whether they're going to put their money into billboard advertising, TV advertising, or having yeah. a Tour de France team. Yeah. So the riders feel a greater pressure to do whatever it takes 
to succeed. Yeah, it's very easy for us to kind of snoop from the sidelines and, and so, oh, panache, panache, panache this and panache that and wasn't it better the old way? Perhaps it was slightly more thrilling, but you do have to acknowledge that from a rider's point of view, the security financially and otherwise that they get from riding in well-organised teams and well-funded teams like Garmin and Sky is good at one fundamental level for the sport and absolutely good for the the anti-doping movement you're right there well we don't have anti-doping rules applying to this ride um so i suggest we supplement the cheese (laughs) toasties and the cups of tea with a little something extra and and head back over the hill into uh, england how about that and into the headwind i believe we get the headwind after the turn great look forward to i'll be behind you ned (laughs) how is that for epic ned that was properly epic. I kept thinking of... This is how deluded I am. What an idiot I am. I kept thinking of uh, that stage in the 2011 Vuelta on the Angliru when uh, Kobo and Froome... No, was it the Angliru? When Kobo basically won the Vuelta and Froome finished behind him and Wiggins just fell away because it was so steep. It was the first time it occurred to me he couldn't get out of his saddle. You know, because the moment, and it's wet, and the minute you get out of your saddle, your back wheel just, you know, you just lose it, don't you? And your front end comes up and it's all just to bits. Anyway, we just, you took us up, how would you describe the road? It's not a road. A rough track. Yeah. A steep, rough, steep, rough track. So in your silliest, littlest gear, sitting down on your saddle, holding on for, you know, and, and basically cycling at walking pace. Trying to keep it moving. Good though. Yeah, well, I see a car up ahead. Yeah. Parked, which suggests Jack, that... are we lost? Yeah. Yeah, good. Well, we've just ridden up a very rough track and Ned is now scaling <laughs> the farm gate and about to lift his exceptionally expensive Condor <laughs> bicycle across the, the, the gate. Oh, there's mine. Jeez, you've ridden this thing all the way up, Jack. Oops. Oops, sorry, was that you? <laughs> there we go. Okay. When you, oh, you look, still... there's the sheep. When you edit this, Jack, just dub on some sort of sheep sound effects afterwards to make it sound like we're in the middle of a farmyard. Okay, I'll do that. made it back mm. to your lodgings very bucolic uh, place you've chosen here Ned it's uh, rather attractive there's a chicken coop behind us with some quite magnificent looking hens strutting about the place is that a rooster over there it's wearing trousers it's one of those ones isn't it <laughs> yeah. I don't know. bantam I'm going to say it's a bantam don't know what a bantam is anyway I'm hoping that they'll egg overnight or they'll ovulate so that I've got some breakfast yeah, I'm quite uh, tired, Jack. Yeah, yeah, that was quite. Um, it was quite hard. Taxing at the end. How far did we ride? I think maybe 35 miles. Is that all? It felt further than that. I think that was that rough track. Yeah, the and track was a highlight. It was extraordinary. It was um, it was quite an adventure. I thought we were badly lost at that point, but I've just been looking at my. I took some pictures at the top of Gospels Pass. Gospels Pass? Uh, Gospel Pass. Gospel Pass. Stunning. What an amazing bit of the world that is. So that was a real... I'll take that away. That's what I'll take away from that ride. It's not the muddy track with the sheep and the fence that we had to scale. Yeah. Ah. Who's going to win the Tour de France? Well, apparently Chris Froome, Mm. according to your prognostication back at Hay. He should do, shouldn't he? I mean, he should do. He's ripped the head off almost every race he's entered. Has he had a contest against... Contador yeah. this hmm. season. Who was, yeah. what, what was that race? Well, it was, I'm trying to think, Terreno Adriatica. He got the better of Contador and was beaten in the end by Nibali. 
um, to the overall. But that's that's the only race he hasn't won, apart from the classics. He rode Liège, Baston Liège, and didn't figure in that. But the, the stage races, every other one that he's entered, he's won. Well, it looks like um, it'll be an interesting race, more interesting than maybe for a few years. I hope so, because, you know, apart from the divisions within Team Sky, it was a pretty neutered affair last year, wasn't it? So it does need a proper challenge, you know, whatever you think of him. Uh, you, for the good of the race, you want to see Alberto Contador clean and back in action and at his best. We haven't seen him at his best this season. Don't know what's going wrong. Andy Schleck is a complete mystery. You fear the worst for him. And you do wonder why, how someone's form can collapse quite so spectacularly. And then there's the, the kind of the names who could emerge, like Quintana. I think he's one to watch. And, and I, hope that, I hope that someone emerges from nowhere and really you know, throws himself into the GC mix. But it will be interesting. So looking forward, because your book, in a way, is about looking back mm. at British cycling yeah. and how it's emerged into what it is now. Where do you see the British cycling scene going forward and how do you see these various strands mm. that you pull out in the book, the tradition, but also the new type of cycling and the, the glitz and the glamour and the money that's infused into the sport in the last five or so years and the higher public profile of cycling where, where do you see it evolving do you think that those strands will mesh together into a beautiful tapestry or do you think that the tensions that there are perhaps that you allude to in the book will um will become more accentuated i don't think the ideal scenario of everyone pulling together and the whole thing becoming a one big smiley happy community will necessarily happen i think people will find their positions within that my fear is that, you know, that we were talking about it earlier, Jack, that the, if you like, the more traditional, perhaps less, less forward-thinking and less well-populated cycling clubs might just wither on the vine now. Um, they were probably heading that way anyway, but I, I, you know, certain cycling clubs find their membership growing and participation there blossoming. Others, though, almost as a reflection of that, are losing fast. And um, you may see venerable institutions possibly going to the wall and races disappearing from the calendar as a result that have meant something to people down the years you know we've got to make sure that we don't just create this top superstructure and then there's no connection between that and the grassroots of the sport and there's no middle ground and there has to be a pyramid and it's that kind of that kind of progression in in terms of the quality of racing and stepping it up and stepping it up at each level that, that isn't quite there yet and far from being established it actually is perilously close to in certain circumstances disappearing I'm curious about the future of the Tour of Britain its contract is up for tender the organisers who put it back on the map for the last 10 years may not for very much longer be the organisers going forward and whoever takes that race now British Cycling still own the franchise if you like you know, they, that may end up going in a different direction and becoming something a bit different it's never going to be a grand tour it's always going to be 8 days long but you could perhaps structure it differently to attract a higher profile foreign stars and raise its profile how would that work how would you do that well one model is i mean i'm not saying that this is a good idea i haven't got my head around it because i like the race as it is but there is um, a thought that you could model it a little bit on the tour down under which operates in the adelaide hills doesn't it um and the teams and the organization stay in one hotel and there's a base camp if you like and then different routes out of that i don't don't know geographically where you'd cite that necessarily so that it's kind of, um, it becomes an event in one area and that might lend it a slightly more kind of structured feel. And would it be the same area every time or would they pick a different place each time to share the spoils out? Well, the, it wouldn't be a tour of Britain if it was always in the Surrey Hills, would it? No, and that's why I come back to the fact that I'm not suggesting this is a good idea. I'm just saying it's an idea that I've heard discussed. And I, I agree with you, I have, I have reservations about that. But the tour down under is always in the same place every year and it seems to be financially pretty stable. You know, you'd rather have that than no race. Having said that, I see no reason why the Tour of Britain can't, in its current guise, go forward and um, progress. But what, what, what I think, there is definite space for development because, frankly, as a nation of spectators and fans, I think we deserve it and we've got the geography that suits it, is I think we, we should be hosting world-class classics, one-day one day races total newbie races made up with no history whatsoever but give it 10 years and they'll have history i think that we've 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 got everything in place now to to attract top riders and the top sort of prize money and make that and top television coverage and that's what they're trying to do with this ride london thing isn't it in august 
and I think a few more of them in the calendar. With wouldn't it be great to see Cancellara and Sagan and everybody punching their way to a, a, a one-day win over here? Why not? I think that's absolutely something we could be embracing. And your book is full of tremendous characters and stories, personal stories. Quite a lot of it's quite moving, I have to say, Ned. There were moments when I had a little bit of a quiver crossing oh, my lip. Yeah. And, um, no, and, I, and it, they are extraordinary stories and extraordinary people. Do you think British cycling will continue to have the capacity to turn up these extraordinary circumstances that give rise to characters and mm. personal stories like the stories that you've described in your book? Yeah. Ooh, you fear, maybe not, actually, because in, in those... You know, in the case of Graham Webb, the 1967 amateur world champion. In the case of Mick Bennett, who two-time Olympic bronze medalist. In the case of Tommy Godwin, both the Tommy Godwins. In the case of Morris Burton. Um, in the case of Tony Hewson, all of whom I write about. They had to overcome, in almost every case, poverty. Quite serious poverty. You know, the kind of poverty that is, is kind of existential, actually. There's not enough food in the house day after day after day throughout an entire childhood that I think we're quite unfamiliar with most of us in this country and and thank God for that or they had to overcome blatant racism you know or they had to they had proper hurdles to overcome even to get to the point at which they were acknowledged as cyclists and flew in the face of the prevailing climate you know being a cyclist was an act of perversity I think I described it British cyclist is a bit like French cricket (laughs) it's an oxymoron it's fundamentally or it was a nonsense so they were men embarking against the odds on a nonsense career for loners right it bred character or rather it was a natural selection of character that was the process you change the process and you change the outcome i was riding with ned bolting and you can follow his coverage of this year's tour de france on itv ned's book on the road bike The Search for a Nation's Cycling Soul is published by Yellow Jersey Press. For those who prefer to listen to their books rather than to read them, Ned has recorded an audiobook, and what follows is an extract in which Ned recounts the story of Tommy Godwin, the remarkable long-distance cyclist. Tommy Godwin 1 was indeed something of a phenomenon. The record he set in 1939 was so extraordinary that the people at the Guinness Book of Records yes, it still exists, are refusing to ratify any more attempts to break it. Their reasoning is that it is too dangerous. That makes it harder than Felix Baumgartner's 2012 jump from space, which I think we can all agree fell into the category of highly risky. Besides, it seems to be a remarkably difficult record to verify. Indeed, when a rider called Ken Webb appeared to have broken it in the 1970s, the verification of the distances he rode was brought into question and his achievement fell, perhaps unfairly, into disrepute. So, Godwin's septuagenarian record still stands to this day. The lunatic, bloody-mindedness of the man. He rode, in one calendar year, 75,065 miles. More than 200 miles every day. Even as I type it, I find Tommy Godwin 1's powers of endurance hard to comprehend. In pictures, he appears brutishly strong, bent over quaint handlebars which gave their name to the voguish moustaches of the era. Not that Godwin had any need for such fripperies as facial hair. The only accessory he sported was a mileometer that he had fixed to his bike, which seemed to have been ripped from the cockpit of a Hawker Hurricane. His trademark pose is knackered. His head on one side, open-mouthed as he gulps in British air and metabolises it. The record itself had been set and broken repeatedly since its inauguration in 1910. In the same way that in France, Lotto newspaper had established a bicycle dash around the country in order to boost its flagging circulation figures, a race that still exists, it's called the Tour de France, so its British cousin, Cycling, established what it called the Century Competition. The winner of this prize would be the rider with the Greatest number of complete 100-mile rides in 1911. The French idea, I'll confess, has enjoyed a little more durability in the public imagination, but the century was big news for a while. A Frenchman, wouldn't you just know it, claimed the first prize. Marcel Plan, 
who ensured that his checking card was signed every day by a local official to prove that he'd ridden as far as he claimed, pedalled for a verified 34,366 miles in a year. That record stood for 21 years, presumably while everyone else admired its utter pointlessness from a comfortable distance. Besides, the First World War served as a pretty considerable distraction, and by the 1920s, everyone had discovered jazz and cocktails, both of which seemed much more fun than riding 100 miles every day on a cast-iron bike. Then, in 1932, the competition reignited. The magnificently named Arthur Humbles spent a year riding out of North London as far as he could along the Great North Road, and then turning round and heading back home for his tea. After 12 months of this, he'd clocked 36,007 miles. He had set a new record. Other holders came and went, and not all of them were British, not by a long way. In 1933, a Tasmanian called Ozzie Nicholson took unfair advantage of Australia's better-than-it-ought-to-be sunshine quotient to set a new standard of 43,966 miles. Three years later, on the 6th of January 1936, a one-armed, teetotal vegetarian named Walter Greaves set off from Bradford on a specially adapted bike. He had a single brake lever for both wheels and a twist-grip gear changer all on the same side of the handlebars. When he finally came to rest on New Year's Eve outside Bradford Town Hall, he'd amassed 45,383 miles. To this day, he remains the only one-armed teetotaler from Yorkshire to have held the record, but interestingly, not the only vegetarian. In 1937, Aussie set out to reclaim his record. At exactly the same time, an English resident, a Frenchman of Scottish descent, I'm not making these people up, named René Mingus, launched his campaign. Aussie prevailed, riding a staggering 62,657 miles, beating Mingus by just 1,096 miles. Intriguingly, although scarcely of any relevance, Mingus, who had been decorated for valour in the First World War, went on to become Charles de Gaulle's chauffeur during the next war, a bizarre biographical detail which by now probably won't surprise you. Then our hero... Tommy Godwin, admiring Ozzy's record from his home in the Potteries, decided he would win it back for king and country. So he duly set off in freezing conditions on New Year's Day 1939 from outside his sponsor's bike shop in Middlesex. It was reported that so many people turned out to see him off that the police thought there was a riot and called for backup. He averaged more than 200 miles a day through an appalling winter and even overcame the minor inconvenience of the outbreak of war in September. The introduction of rationing affected his vast dairy-based intake. Tommy, like Walter, was a vegetarian. And the blackout meant he could no longer use his lights to ride in the darkness. He had to wait for a full moon and clear skies. He did it, though. 75,065 miles. Then he carried on, just for fun. By Whitson, he had ridden the fastest ever 100,000 miles. It took 499 days, on each of which he averaged more than 200 miles. Eventually he did settle down to the rest of his life. He was called up to service, but by now wasn't any good to the army. All those days in the saddle had changed him forever. His heels wouldn't touch the ground, and his hands remained slightly curled. So he served out the war for the Royal Air Force and started a family. That was Ned Bolting reading from On the Road Bike an illuminating, funny and at times surprisingly moving book, well worth tracking down a copy. That's it for The Bike Show this week. Tune in again next time. From me, Jack Thurston, goodbye.